Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. In a few years, we will use helpful and harmless AI systems. That's the premise of today's conversation. I'm Azim Azar. Welcome to the Exponentially podcast. Today's AI models are complex with hundreds of billions of virtual moving parts. We don't so much as build them as nurture and nudge them. As this technology improves exponentially, how can we trust it? Can we really design these systems to be harmless and honest as well as helpful? I've come to San Francisco, the epicenter of the AI revolution, to talk to a man who has staked a lot on being able to do just that. Dario Amade, the founder and CEO of Anthropic. Well, Dario, it's wonderful to have you here. You're a bona fide researcher with papers on AI and AI safety that have been cited more than 30,000 times in just the last seven years. But you are at the epicenter of an enormous explosion in the field of AI today. What does that feel like? It feels like a mixture of excitement and concern at how fast things are going. I generally alternate between the two. You know, on one hand, there's something new and exciting every day that comes from us or that comes from one of the other many players in the space. I always look at things and I say, wow, this is so cool. This could be so useful. And then I look at the other side of it and I'm going, this is all happening so fast that it's hard for us to adapt. It's hard for me running a company that makes these things Mm -hmm. to keep up with all the innovations that we've done, even within the company. I totally concur with you. I've been in the tech industry since the early 90s. I've been through the dot-com bubble, mobile, social, Nothing has been as significant as this. It runs the gamut all the way from this tiny detail in the computer code to, uh, you know, well, what does that mean for the way the model interacts in this particular use case? And also, given the interest in AI today, what will this mean for truth on the internet? What will it mean for jobs for white collar and office workers? What will it mean for national productivity and national competition? I mean, these are all questions that that people are asking and that they're turning to the AI developers in a sense for those answers. Yeah, I think the multifaceted nature of the technology, the generality, means that on one hand, there's this almost endless set of possible positive applications of the technology. But also when you go to list what are the concerns with the technology, that list is also very long. There's this challenge that we face though, because the technologies are, they're accelerating away this curve that we're all familiar with now, the exponential curve. But the way that human dynamics work, human institutions, the way that our laws work, our families work, the relationships we have in school and at work, they move much slower. They move at a more traditional pace. And there is a gap that is emerging. Does that worry you? Yes. I think that's a good way of describing it. We're pouring exponentially more compute into these systems. We're technically able to do it, and we're getting better and better performance when we do that. But then when we look at what does that mean for society, for disruptions to business, disruptions to economic and governmental structures, 
it's happening faster than we can adapt. And so I think on the technical side, we need to do more to try and control, measure, steer these models more so than we're able to do today. And I think on kind of the business and legal and regulatory side, we need to find ways for societal institutions to adapt faster to the changing technology. AI is one of those terms where it means so many different things to different people. So what does AI mean to you when you say you want to build an AI system? What do you think of? The systems that we primarily work on building are large language models, mm -hmm. which are systems that you can talk to and they talk back and they can perform tasks for you. They can program, they can answer questions about legal matters, or medical matters, and any number of topics. So our model, Claude, is an example of this. Well, tell me about Claude, though, because yes. I heard the name and it's a really cute name. And a friend of mine from school had a fluffy skunk that was called Claude. So it always yes. has this sweet association for me. I think we just wanted a name that sounded like it was a friendly assistant or someone that would help you. The term we use is helpful, honest, and harmless. So what can I reasonably ask of someone that I'm, I'm asking for help on something? I want them to be helpful in the task. I don't want them to do anything dangerous or harmful, and I don't want them to mislead me. I want them to be honest. And if someone manages to do those three things, then you know I generally feel like they've done a good job being an assistant. I want to bring that back to your definition of what an AI system is. Is it a system that exhibits those types of human personality characteristics, or is it something a little bit different? Like the overall definition of AI, right, for the whole field can be any system that performs any intelligent or pattern matching task. So it's possible to build AIs with all kinds of different properties, but I think our vision and our picture is that we want to build these systems to be helpful, honest, and harmless. And if we can achieve those consistently, then systems will be beneficial yeah. to society. So I've used Claude a little bit. I'll let you in on a secret. I use it to help me with my research for the interviews that I do. What are the kind of use cases that you would like people to be using the technology for now? I think on the helpful side, people often find that Claude is more friendly and creative than other models. So that's the helpful side. I think honest and harmless are often connected to some business use cases that, that we think are important. So by harmless, we mean that we don't want Claude to be willing to kind of engage in aiding with dangerous or illegal activities. We don't want Claude to have prejudices or biases in either direction, really, right? If I present a model that I, you know, I've serves as a lawyer or serves in some medical function, it's very important the model be, you know, for a human, we would call it neutral and professional. For the model, we call it harmless. One problem that models often have, and I'll be honest, every model still, this is unsolved problem, mm -hmm. every model has it to some extent, is what we call the hallucination problem. Right, so I find sometimes if I ask these systems to give my biography, it'll switch my university and then it'll switch the first place I worked, it still looks really credible, but it's wrong. Yeah, this is the insidious nature of kind of the imperfect uh, systems, right? Where, you know, the nightmare is, you know, you ask the system for a set of 10 facts and all of it sounds professional and credible. Nine of the facts are right. And one of them is wrong in some very, very important way. Making it good enough so that you can really trust it is one of our top priorities at Anthropic. We have a significant, probably about a quarter of the team at Anthropic focuses on it, but still no one is perfect. We, like everyone else, are still to some extent plagued by this problem. But this problem exists because of the way that these large language models are structured. It's the way that they, I think, 
we don't even say that they're built, they're sort of grown in a funny sort of way. I think that's something yeah, that- Baked like a cake or something. Right, or baked like gestated. They're not built like scaffolding is built or built like a car engine is built where you assemble component after component. No, there's in fact two stages to the training. So in the first stage, you just train the model on a huge amount of text, like a huge amount of the text on the internet. And but it's billions of words it's, of text. It's, it's some large fraction of what's available. And literally, we just train the model to be good at predicting the next word in the sentence, predicting each word in the sentence after one another. So the model learns a lot about the world when you do this. But honestly, one thing it doesn't learn is that it shouldn't make things up. It's basically trying to predict what would be plausible if it came next, not necessarily what is true. So then there's a second stage of training done in different ways. For example, the state of the art in the field is a method called RL from reinforcement learning from human feedback. It's a little bit like how I might train my young puppy. Yeah. You give it rewards when it does well and you may treat it slightly differently if it doesn't behave correctly. Is it like that or is it, it more, more sophisticated? Yeah, it's, it's actually quite a lot like that, where instead of the owner speaking to the puppy, you just have a human rate how well the models are doing. And who is the you in the you teach it? Is it people like you, people like me? Yeah, to get a little bit into the details, this in the state-of-the-art method, which I said RL from human feedback, in that method, some number of people will be hired. Usually it's contractors who looks at the model and says, okay, I saw these two responses. This one is better than that one. One of the reasons why we invented constitutional AI is that's fairly opaque. If someone says, you know, I might ask my model, say a political question, right. and it expresses an opinion and someone gets mad, they say, why does the model have this opinion instead of that opinion? All you can really say with RLHF is, okay, well, that was the average opinion of the thousand contractors that I hired, which is not very satisfying. The other thing that strikes me about that approach is that your model is billions and billions and billions of words in it, and it can throw out billions, umpteen billions of different sentences. So that's a lot of stuff for humans to look at. I mean, are there even enough humans to give feedback? The big first stage of training does involve billions of words. But actually, the second stage of training, typically it's maybe, I don't know, a thousand humans, each of whom gives a thousand ratings over a few days or something. Wow, so that is that's hundreds really of efficient. billions and then millions. It's very difficult conceptually, but it actually doesn't take all that much data. But you've moved on from this RLHF, reinforcement learning with human feedback, to constitutional AI, which introduces a second AI system to help train the first one. Yes. So basically, in constitutional AI, you write a constitution, which could be anywhere between one page and 10 pages. Right. And it basically states the rules that the AI system could follow. What are the things that are in your constitution for Claude? It's evolved over time. But, you know, from the beginning, I think we started with some things from like the UN Charter of Human Rights, things that are hard to disagree with. And then we added some things about Claude being responsive to the user and various things. There are various kinds of harms that we were particularly concerned with, kinds of information that are dangerous or illegal. But how can you measure then whether Claude is behaving as you have trained it? That's actually a very difficult and subtle problem, right? Because I think one of the things about these models is that they're incredibly broad. One of the things I've said is, you know, often a model might know something or not know something or have an opinion on something. 
And you don't necessarily know about it until a million people have used it or something. To be clear, I think this is a bad thing. We shouldn't have to deploy the model to a million people to discover that it happens to be an expert on some particular type of weapons that we'd rather not talk about that. Yes. Another example is, I don't know the first thing about cricket, but Claude is an expert on cricket. Claude is also an expert on Japanese history. I don't know the first thing about Japanese history. I can help you with one of those (laughs) two. It's not not the Japanese history. Um, and, And so... One of our main areas of research is trying to detect ahead of time all the things that the model is capable of. So it's this very open-ended problem, and we're constantly trying to build up kind of evaluations and standards for measuring our model. Software and engineering has been very deterministic. Yes. You buy a hammer, you know what a hammer does, a clunk. You get a piece of software like the calculator on your smartphone, it calculates and will always give you the same results. And the words that you use is that you're working with the model so that it doesn't do things that you would rather it not do. A a bit like a kind uncle talking to their slightly difficult nephew. Are you translating technical language into normal English for my benefit? Or is this process one of rathers and maybes and would be betters? So when you go to train the system, right, you know, it requires thousands of computer chips all working in sync. There's an incredible precision to the engineering. You know exactly what you're making. You know exactly what data is going into it. You know exactly how much it costs per hour. It has all the hallmarks of precision engineering, same as making a semiconductor chip. But on the output, it has exactly the properties that you talk about. It's much more of an art than a science. When you look past the form and the container into which you're pouring things, the pouring process is very predictable. But what you get out at the other end is very inherently hard to predict. And we're trying to turn it into more of a science, but it's not inherently so. It doesn't start that way. That's a problem for us to solve. I think of this analogy of the first stereo system that we had at home, and it had a bass dial and a treble dial. It had two dials that you could use to adjust the sound. And when I look at these large language models, they have 10 billion, 100 billion, 500 billion dials. You guys call them parameters. Does the fuzziness come out of that complexity? Yeah, I think it comes out of that complexity, and we're not manually turning each of the dials, right? That'd be really tedious job. Yeah, we have an automated process that kind of decides when any dial should be turned and how much based on the data that it receives. So a lot of people have said over the last five or six years, the problem with neural networks and a large language model is a type of neural network is that they are black boxes. And the the point being that you can't look into them and see what the process is in the same way you can't look into my brain at the moment, not without hurting me anyway, and see what the process is. So you're developing methods of peering into that black box. You're developing the instruments and the tools to do that. Yes, this is an area that we've been worked on since the beginning of Anthropic. This was one of our first teams and it's grown over time. We're looking at methods to try and understand when a particular element of the network, which we call a neuron, and that analogy to the human neurons turns on or fires, what is associated with it. And we've found some interesting things that actually parallel what we've seen in the human brain. I used to be a neuroscientist. So you can see the network often using very human-like concepts, but we're really just at the beginning of that, right? We can decode some of what the network does and understand some of the principles behind it. But I think it's going to be years before that science matures. Is it important to make some breakthroughs in those particular fields in order to deliver verifiably safe AI systems. Yeah, I think that's going to be one important component. 
yeah. because of the fuzziness that we talked about before. Right. But if you understand something about what's going on inside the network, why it does what it does, then you can maybe predict what it's going to do in circumstances you've never seen before. There are behaviors that come out of these networks that weren't designed in, that are emerging. And it's given almost a sort of a mystical sense around it. What do you understand by this idea of emergent behavior? Yeah, so I wouldn't attach anything mystical to it any more than I would attach anything mystical to, you know, as humans grow up, they start to understand the world and they have realizations. But I think, you know, as the model starts to see something in its training data, it learns to concatenate that training data to put together the puzzle pieces in different ways. Writing semantically correct computer code or being able to do a particular type of math or understanding the concept of what's legal versus what's illegal. Right. All of these are things that appear at some stage. They're not magical, they're not mystical, they're in the training data, but the model at some point learns to put together the pieces when it wasn't able to before. It's such a complex set of trade-offs because if I know the thing is wrong half the time, I will double check every answer. But if it's only wrong once in a hundred, I'm not going to. And I wonder about whether you foresee some almost chasm that you'd have to leap of safety before these things really can feel safe. Yeah, so I think that's an important problem. And we really want to avoid this situation where the models are kind of, you know, we become dependent on them or come to rely on them while they may still be sometimes making mistakes that we would be able to catch. So I think one of the important things is for models to know what they don't know. And so the great thing would be a much more usable AI system than the one you describe is one where 99% of the time it gets the right answer. And that 1% of the time it says, I don't actually know. Here are some guesses. They might be wrong. But if it's able to signal or signpost that it might not be confident, it's a lot more useful. In fact, I would probably prefer a system that's right 90% of the time and says, I don't know, 10% of the time, than one that's right 99% of the time and kind of silently lies to me the other 1%, right? This is yeah. getting back to the honest thing, right? Absolutely. Like it's okay not to know sometimes, yes. but I don't want you to make things up. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.
These are really powerful technologies, and I'll put my cards on the table. I think they will be the most powerful technologies we'll see in our lifetimes. How do we get them into society more broadly in ways that are very, very beneficial? So I think there's kind of two sides to that, right? There's preventing the harms and achieving the benefits. Mm -hmm. So I think on the preventing the harm side, I mean, this helpful, honest, harmless, looking inside the model, these are both important areas. There's another area I haven't talked about yet, which is ensuring that models stay under effective human control and that we're able to supervise them even as they get smarter than we are. You know, when the models start to know much more than humans do, how do we make sure that humans are able to check and verify their work and that they don't lie to us in ways that we can't detect? In a world where AI systems are prevalent and many of these systems perhaps are built by anthropic and therefore they're guided by your constitution in your constitutional AI. Are you the right person to set the rules for that constitution? Because the US has a constitution, Germany has a constitution, but that constitution was built by a sense of consensus, a sense of accountability yes. and legitimacy. You seem like a really trustworthy guy, but is it fair for that power to reside with you? I think actually mostly not. So I think the way we envision it is there may be a base model that has a very basic constitution, right? And we talk about things like the UN Charter of Human right. Rights, but we're actually developing a process to allow different use cases or different customers to write almost an addendum or to extend the constitution on top of the basic things. So the idea would be all versions of Claude have these very basic rules, right? They're not gonna commit things that or help with things that almost all of human society agrees is right. bad. Right. Um, but then, let's say I wanted to make an agent that helped with something medical versus an agent that served as your lawyer versus a customer service agent versus a therapist. Right. The rules for that are very different. Basically, my answer is that for 90% of things, it's not up to us to decide. It's only the 10% of things where we think most people would agree and where we defer as much as we can to societal processes. And there are so many great processes. We know, for example, that cars are safer in 2023 than they were in the 1960s because of rules around seatbelts and braking systems and crash testing. We know that when radium was first discovered by Marie Curie, anyone could make a medical product with radium, radium cough sweets for babies. So what's the process that we should use for AI systems? Should it look like drug approvals or should it look like perhaps a much lighter weight system than the type we have in the auto industry? I think maybe of like cars and airplanes or something like that as good examples of kind of powerful technologies that are safety critical where lives are on the line. So the kind of early wild west of all these technologies, I think we're in that period in AI and we need to move as quickly as possible. Well, through it, move through move, that period, right? Move, move through that period rather quickly, rather soon, right. uh, where and, and, there and are why? some rules of the road. Why so quickly? I think it's the exponential. With another technology, I might say, look, we don't understand the cost and benefits that well. Like We need to have these things play out in the market a little bit before we start to step in and set regulation that might be too rigid. But that's not my view for AI because it's moving so fast, because right. the implications are happening so fast. I, I suspect that this is a case where we're gonna need very soon some kinds of rules of the road. Is it that the systems are getting faster? Is it that they're getting measurably more powerful? Is it that they're being used more frequently in business? What is this exponential that you're referring yes. to? <laughs> yes, yes to all. <laughs> so the exponential is basically 
the amount of computation, number mm -hmm. of chips times the time we run them for times the speed of the chips. Uh, and each of those factors is getting faster. But it used to be five or 10 years ago, the amount of money that you would put into training one of these AI systems was the size of an academic research grant. Right. So 100,000 to a million dollars. We're now in an era where I would say companies spend 10 to 100 million dollars. But I think we're gonna enter an era because the economic value is so great, where it's going to be, you know, a billion dollars or ten billion dollars, right? And we should convert that spend into the amount of processing that these big AI supercomputers are doing. Exactly, and they're doing that processing to produce systems that are even more powerful. Exactly, and at the same time as that happening, the chips are getting faster, right. and more money is going also into making the chips faster because there's so much useful things that the models can do. And then of course, engineers are working on how to squeeze every possible drop of efficiency out of the compute that right. we have once we spent it. And companies are, are desperate. I've spoken to the bosses of many very large firms and it's really high up on their agenda to figure out how they use these technologies in their businesses. And walking around San Francisco the last few days, I can feel the palpable buzz of people just wanting to build on AI the way they yes. wanted to build on the iPhone 15 years ago. I think on one hand, that's really exciting and we benefit from it and others benefit from it. And I don't wanna do anything to slow down the excitement or the positive benefits, but everyone understands that you need to make these things safe and there is no industry if you don't make these things safe. Absolutely. We're building these AI systems using large language models that are on an exponential, but exponentials are really, they're really S-curves. They go up and then they tail yes. off. How long does this exponential run for before it tails off? In other words, is this the last set of innovations that we're going to need for AI? I would say we have at least a few years of the current exponential, and then people have ways of coming up with new innovations that continue things after that. I think a few years from now, we may get to the point where AI systems can perform these feats that humans aren't capable of. And we've seen with the AI systems, they're already broader than humans. Right. So if we could get them to the point where they're broader and they're more creative than we are or as creative and able to see all the connections, I really have this hope that human scientists assisted by AI could make progress on these complex diseases as fast as we've made progress on the simple diseases. And my hope is if we really get this right, could we actually get to the point where this particular cancer is just not a problem anymore? And of course, beyond the medical applications yes. into climate change, into poverty elimination, into all sorts of problems that we as humans all, all have found. All problems of complexity beyond, beyond human scope. Right. So let's look forward a little bit. The premise of our discussion is that in five years, we could all be using good, trustworthy AI systems just as part of normal life. Do you think that could become reality? Yeah, I think that could. So, you know, assume we get right all the kind of rules of the road, safety, helpful, honest, harmless. If we solve all those problems, which we've talked about a fair amount, I do think that everyone could have an AI assistant that they really trust. And your whole way of interacting with the world could be done through this AI assistant. It can help you make better decisions and say, hey, like, you know, I think you'd be happier if you did X instead of Y, tailored to the way you want it to be that helps you to be the best version of yourself. Well, maybe in five years time, my AI assistant can meet your AI assistant <laughs> right here and we can see how well the two of us did. Same place, same time. Let's see if we can fulfill that bet. <laughs> Thank you.
Reflecting on my conversation with Dario, I'm struck by how he acknowledges that the pace of change is so quick, it's exponential, and he's really attentive to the problem of harm. He's very thoughtful about it. That may be much more comfortable, but it's also clear that the way we define what we want from these systems cannot be left to AI developers. It really needs to be led by ordinary citizens and by their legitimate governments. Thanks for listening to the Exponentially podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review or rating. It really does help others find us. The Exponentially podcast is presented by me, Azim Azar. The sound designer is Will Horrocks. The research was led by Chloe Ipper and music composed by Emily Green and John Zarconi. The show is produced by Frederick Casella, Maria Gavrilov and me, Azim Azar. Special thanks to Sage Bauman, Jeff Grocott and Magnus Henriksen. The executive producers are Andrew Barden, Adam Kamiski, and Kyle Kramer. David Ravella is the managing editor. Exponentially was created by Frederick Casella and is an E to the Pi I plus one limited production in association with Bloomberg LLC. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.